gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. I am Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And today we're starting a two-part series, and it really does fit with what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, we started on essential doctrines of the Christian faith and how important they are. And last week, we talked about the Trinity, because that is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. And one thing that is so important, it's always been so important to theology gals, is both those essential doctrines and the gospel. And while we've talked about federal vision before, we want to approach it a little differently. One of the concerns that we've had, and we're really going to be very transparent in the things that we say here about our concerns, but we have had concerns about people uniting with proponents of federal vision. And I know there's a lot of confusion because some of the proponents have said, hey, I don't want to be called federal vision anymore. And yet they're still teaching federal vision doctrines. And so we really want to focus on federal vision. There's a lot of people that say federal vision isn't an issue anymore. That was a long time ago. And, you know, I asked Rachel this week, is there anything that almost all NAPARC denominations, almost all Reformed denominations have said, hey, we have to respond to this thing and opposed it. And we couldn't think of anything quite on this level that all, almost all Reformed denominations have addressed, have done study committees, have submitted papers, and said, this is error. We believe that this is still an issue in the church, and we think it's actually even more dangerous now because a lot of people say, oh, it's not that big of an issue. They're promoting people that teach this. And another thing that we're going to be addressing is in regards to Baptists. And this is going to be a two-part series, so this will be more in the second part. But a lot of times Baptists say, oh, it's just a Presbyterian issue. But if you're a Baptist, I want you to listen up, because it's not just a Presbyterian issue. 
In fact, uh, Doug Wilson, a proponent of Federal Vision himself, says, no, Baptists can be Federal Vision too. So we have a lot that we want to address. And lastly, before we get started, there's something I want to say, and we'll probably reiterate this in the end of the series, is if there is a proponent of Federal Vision that no longer believes in Federal Vision, I think there's some things that will be necessary. I think it is necessary to put out some sort of paper that says, this is what I used to believe. This is what I now believe and why. Putting little articles saying, hey, I don't use the label anymore, or a video here and there, continuing to send sell resources from your publishing company that promote these things, it's very hard to believe that you no longer believe those things. In fact, this week I thought of two different teachers that say, hey, I no longer believe this error that I used to believe. And when they did that, they took the books off the shelf. So um, that's just a, a summary of things that we are going to be talking about. We're going to talk about the history. We're going to talk about what Federal Vision is. We're going to have a long list of resources in these episodes. So, okay, we're going to start off and talk about the history. And before I hand it over to Rachel, I have to tell you, I remember years ago, in fact, over, I guess my second child is 21. It was when I was pregnant with him. And we were studying baptism, attending a PCA, and somebody gave us a box of Norman Shepard tapes. Now, I'd never heard of Norman Shepard, but my husband said, oh, yeah, no, he knew. He knew who Norman Shepard was. So let's start off and talk about the history of Federal Vision, and I think we have to start with Norman Shepard. So I'll let you take it from there, Rachel. Thanks. Yeah, I I just want to reiterate that you know Colleen speaks for both of us there with what she what she said in the intro. Um, this is a really serious issue, and not one that I think we can just you know either sweep under the rug or shrug our shoulders over. So um, when you talk about the history of of the Federal Vision movement and and where these things started. Uh, most of the resources point back to the, the mid-70s uh, with Norman Shepard at Westminster Th- Seminary. And what it centered around, what the controversy began around, was around Shepard's um, reworking, uh, redefinition of justification. And, you know, this is one of those, when in, in linking this to essential doctrines, um, you know, Luther is quoted, whether he said it actually this way or not, but the idea is there in his writings that um, justification is the article that the church stands or falls on. This is this is essential to the gospel. It's essential to our faith and to our understanding of the gospel. So, that's why, you know, when we talk about this, any believer, this is an issue that we're all concerned over about justification. So, what Shepherd began to teach was that justification is not just by faith, but by both faith and works. Um, he redefined his beliefs on the covenant, so instead of believing that there was a covenant of works and then a covenant of grace, that the covenant of works that Adam was under, he says, you know, he, he denies that uh, and said that um, that there was both faith and grace in, in Adam's re- relationship before the fall with God, and that's the same as ours today. Um he also rejected the imputation of Christ's active obedience, and uh, he, he talked about faith in terms of obedient faith instead of you know justification by faith alone. It was these changes, so it's not just 
um, that faith is not just receiving and resting, but it is this obedient faith or faithfulness. And that created quite, quite an uproar. Uh, it, it caused a lot of concern over what he was teaching, and it was just it was a big controversy. Shepherd finally uh, left the you know, left the seminary. This was you know the start, this beginning of of beliefs about how to look at the covenants and how to look at justification and the meaning of faith. You know, one one thing I wanted to mention that in my husband and I have been in Reformed Presbyterian churches for twenty five years. And we will periodically run into people that will still defend Shepard. We'll have some links where you can kind of read about the exact history of what happened. Um, but I remember talking to a pastor, he was a Napark pastor, and he said to us, oh, I think that Shepard was just misunderstood. So you will still find some influ- some of Shepard's influence in Napark churches. Well, and that that claim about having been misunderstood, and we're going to see it, and we'll address it later again. But it's it's a, a common complaint um, by by everyone who's, who is um, labeled Federal Vision that they're often they say the same things that they they've just been misunderstood. One of the things I think is important before we get on to what happened after that is that, as in addition to talking about. Uh, justification in terms of faithfulness and obedient faith, or he, um, uh, Shepherd wrote that about baptism that all are united to Christ and receive the benefit of Christ temporarily and conditionally, and the condition to retain these these benefits of Christ is faithfulness. So he, it's a considerable departure, and we'll get into why that is later, but. Um, what you'll notice as we continue talking is the um, similarity between what Shepard was teaching and what becomes known as Federal Vision. So as as time goes on, this is you know that's again late eighties, late seventies, early eighties. Um, over time, you have kind of some different um, guys picking up the language and using it in different ways. And by the early 2000s, 2002, there's a a conference that was held for pastors at at Auburn Avenue Church, and so it's known as the Auburn Avenue Conference. And there were four main speakers, uh, John Barich, Doug Wilson, Steve Sleisel, and Steve Wilkins, um, who articulated this new theology um, that they labeled Federal Vision, what became called Federal Vision. And what they claimed is that they were recovering Reformed theology. They believed that uh, antinomianism and um, an overly individualistic uh, faith uh, was being described in a lot of evangelism or uh, evangelicalism. And they wanted to deal with these problems. So the conference centered on how to view the covenant, and they called what well, they talked to about the objectivity of the covenant. And what happened though is that they rejected and redefined a number of confessional reform doctrines th- throughout their conference. And some of these include you know, the covenant of works, the distinction between the visible and invisible church. Uh, the nature of baptism, 
perseverance of the saints, uh, the atonement, how the atonement works, justification, um, and they got used either kind of Roman Catholic way of looking at it as obedient or like the Norman Shepherd, the, the obedient faith, working faith description. Um, and then there was a, a reworking, a re-understanding of assurance. And so where they seem to be concerned about issues of how we know we're saved, um, what they would say is something along the lines of, you know, look to your baptism because you were really saved and united to Christ in your baptism. That was, that's the focus. Now, the Federal Vision Movement always has been a conglomerate of guys who have slightly different beliefs overall. Like if you ask them and got them all together and, and ask them what they believe about baptism and justification, there would be variations. However, when you, when you look at, you know, because we have the benefit of the last, you know, 15 years plus of their writing since then, there is a consistent kind of baseline set of beliefs that were set up, set out and articulated by the federal vision movement. And to date, none of the major proponents, the original proponents have come out and made statements that uh, deny their, their adherence to these, these basic beliefs that we're going to cover. So, um, those basic beliefs that Rachel's talking about were laid out in the Joint Federal Vision Declaration, and we're not going to go point by point over that. While there are variations in how far the proponents will go regarding some of these beliefs, you still can go back to that Joint Declaration. I did want to mention this week I re-listened to a Reformed Brotherhood episode where they did go through the Joint Declaration, and I think that's very helpful. I did disagree with them on a couple of small points, but um, they they showed um, really some of the errors in that Joint Declaration. And Rachel had just mentioned the redefining of terms. And this is such an important point. And some people have come to me and said, hey, Colleen, that sounds like Lordship Salvation. Is there any overlap? And so Lordship Salvation is very different in that it's based on a dispensational framework. And Federal Vision was really uh, pushed into a confessional reformed theology. But as you remember from from Lordship Salvation, a redefinition of faith. So, faith is defined as knowledge, assent, and trust. And in Lordship Salvation, MacArthur redefined it as knowledge, assent, and a determination of the will to obey. You'll see the same thing with Federal Vision, where they redefine faith. So, now when you say, just, yes, I believe in justification by faith alone, it takes on a whole new meaning than what the reformers meant when they affirmed justification by faith alone. Yeah, that's that's a very important point that there is. Um, it, it you have to get down to what do what do they mean by each of these terms? How are they using them? What are they saying with them? And what are they not saying? And most of these issues, especially when you get down to justification and faith, and baptism, all of these things were were issues that 
our Reformed Church Fathers worked through very carefully, and the language that they use is very precise, to be careful about not saying the wrong thing here. So, um, there are, it may seem subtle, but there are some very concerning differences, which we'll get into. The other thing that you'll find with Federal Vision proponents is that they will go back to Calvin, they'll go back to the Westminster Divines, and they'll say, this is what Calvin meant. This is what the Westminster Divines meant. But I've read, I'm not a historian, but I have read from historians that say that there's a lot of ignorance of history in their assertions. So that's kind of some of the basic history. You know, as Rachel and I have been studying this week, both of us have said there's just so much information. I kind of feel like we're barely scratching, we'll barely be scratching the surface, even in two episodes. And there's going to be so many um, resources in these episode notes. So if you want to dig more into the history, you want to dig more into anything that we talk about, you'll be able to find some resources there. But I think we should kind of, at this point, let's talk about what it is that Federal Vision teaches. And then from there, we'll talk about how it differs from Reformed theology. And again, I want to emphasize something that Rachel mentioned, that you will find differences among Federal Vision proponents. So, while there are some differences, as we've said, um, in the individuals who who have been part of the Federal Vision movement and what they believe, uh, looking at the joint profession, uh, the joint statement on Federal Vision, uh, there are some parts that are very, uh, the, the key, the, the centerpiece of of their found of their their redefinition, their reworking of the covenant and justification, and it starts with what they believe about baptism. So what they say is that um, that God formally unites a person to Christ and to His covenant people through baptism, and that this baptism uh, puts one into a lifelong covenant, and each baptized person is formally engrafted into the church. Baptism then is into the regeneration. What they're saying in the joint profession, I know it's, it's a lot of words, but what they're saying in this about baptism is that through baptism, every person who's baptized receives the benefits of Christ. Uh, this includes election, union with Christ, justification, adoption, and that, that then all who are baptized are in the covenant by grace. And then beyond that then, they talk about the need for an obedient faith in order to to stay in the covenant. So it's possible then as we'll talk to lose this salvation and to be cut off from the covenant um, by not remaining faithful. Now, I know that this might be confusing for Baptists because they may not understand, a lot of times Baptists will assume this is the Reformed view of baptism, and it isn't, and we'll get into how this differs from the Reformed view in a moment, but they actually believe in a type of temporal election. So, there's an election, so they kind of talk about two different elections, a temporal election that will happen at baptism when a child is united to Christ, and then they'll talk about an eternal decree. So, not all who have that temporal election that are baptized and united to Christ will um, persevere to the end. Right. 
And we'll get into that in a minute, but that's very different than the reform position on baptism. We, um, so they believe that a child is united to Christ in baptism and receives all the benefits that maybe a you know, 10-year-old or 15-year-old or even adult convert has when they have true saving faith, that they receive all those benefits, they're united to Christ. And so one thing you'll find is that uh, not all but most Federal Vision proponents will practice paedo-communion. So because they believe that the child is united to Christ in baptism, they'll give their babies a drop of wine on their tongue and a a crumb of bread that they may... um, partake of communion right and that's been one of the big discussion points of as the um reformed denominations have addressed it a lot of it centers on on that as well um so with the basics in federal vision one thing that gets redefined as we said is is baptism and the and communion then with the sacraments um with baptism, as we said, believing that baptism unites every baptized person to Christ, uh, Wilson, Doug Wilson wrote in his uh, Reformed is Not Enough uh, that baptism means that the one baptized has the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, the one baptized has been grafted into Christ, he has the sign and seal of regeneration, forgiveness of sins, and the obligation to walk in newness of life. Uh, and that's similar to what you see in the joint statement, which is baptism formally engrafts a person into the church, which means that baptism is into the regeneration. And that in him we have a renewal of life and the fullness of life in the new age and the kingdom of God. What what they're talking about here um, is that because the person has been baptized, that person has forgiveness of sins. That person is united to Christ, is part of Christ. And... This is similar, you see similarity in the, the Roman Catholic Catechism, um, part of which says that united with Christ by baptism, believers already participate in the heavenly life of the risen Christ. Um, also says that the Christian initiation is accomplished by three sacraments together. Baptism is then the beginning of new life. So, this, this belief, as we'll get into why it's different, this belief about baptism um, is much more in common with the Roman Catholic view of baptism than it is with uh, a confessionally Reformed view. You know, I have a, a friend that's Catholic, and she was talking to her priest, and I, I haven't researched this to find out if this is accurate, but her priest said that paedo-communion was practiced historically in the Catholic Church. And so, based on this view, that would make sense. Um, her priest was telling her that that's something that some priests would like to return to. Just that, as we'll get into, you know, those belief, that belief about baptism um, is and communion, neither of those are uh, consistent with the confessionally reformed view of, of the sacraments. So, the other thing that gets uh, redefined is justification. So, with justification, and we're going to talk later about how this uh, is different than the reform position. And the other thing I want to say is this isn't anything new. If you go throughout church history, there are so many attacks on the doctrine of justification. And probably in part two, we're going to get to some other examples of that. But Shepard really taught a two-stage justification. So, faith is defined 
as an o- obedient or working faith. And so, again, a Federal Vision proponent may say, yes, I believe in justification by faith alone. I just saw this recently. Uh, it was from someone who used to say, hey, I'm Federal Vision, and now says, oh, no, I'm not Federal Vision. And and yet, if you read their writings, you'll find some of the same language of covenant faithfulness. And so, when they say, yes, I believe in justification by faith alone, they mean something very different. So, when you redefine words, and this has been happening all throughout history, and I know that we are going to talk a little bit about Doug Wilson, because I think that that is probably the most influential Federal Vision proponent. And one of the reasons, uh, I'm just going to be really transparent here, one of the reasons why we did this episode is because recently in in real life, um, you see Doug Wilson and his organization uniting with some different organizations like Founders and G3. And uh, a lot of times I had um, a discussion with somebody very involved in one of those organizations who actually posted a video of Doug Wilson saying, oh, yes, I believe in justification by faith alone. So I'm going to read a couple quotes from Doug Wilson. He says, men fall away because their salvation was contingent upon continued covenant faithfulness in the gospel. That is from the book Reformed is Not Enough. And let me tell you, that book is still sold from Canon Press, Wilson's publishing company. Um, Doug Wilson, he insists we have to say using biblical language, the language of James, that we are justified by good works. That's in Reformed is Not Enough again. The reason this becomes an issue is that when you redefined you know, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, when you, when you redefine um, and, and, and do away with the distinction between the law and the gospel that goes along with that, that distinction, then you have to, to redefine what it means to be justified um, by faith or justified apart from works. And so what happens is they argue that when Paul was talking about that you're not justified by your works, that Paul was saying that when you do your works uh, with bad motive, like in order to justify yourself, you can't or earn the reward. Uh, so you're justified apart from those works because um, they were not those those works were not done in a way that would earn us something. And, but then when James talks about we're justified, we're not justified by faith alone, apart from works, that what James is talking about then is that obedience of faith. So that then Paul and James are talking about the same justification, or justification in the same way, but they're referring to different kinds of works that justify. So then justification uh, is is not by works uh, of merit that are done in order to earn justification, but they justification includes the um, the works that the Spirit brings up in the works of faith, and those are the works that justify us. So that's that's the argument. So one of the things I'm going to include in that in the episode notes is the RCUS Reformed Church US uh, their paper, and they were one of the first to respond to Federal Vision. I'm not going to read this in its entirety, but there's a few points that I want to make. 
In, in their paper, they say, Doug Wilson argues that he holds to the historic reform doctrine of justification by faith alone. For example, he writes, the historic Protestant position on justification is correct, and the Roman Catholic understanding of individual justification as a process involving an infusion of righteousness is wrong. And I'm going to skip down, um, and I really encourage you to read this. If you... If it looks overwhelming, when I link it in the episode notes, you can scroll down and find the section on Wilson, or if you want to know the section on Lightheart, they've organized it very well. Anyways, I'm skipping down. First of all, Wilson's summary of the historic Protestant doctrine of justification is not complete. This is very important. It is missing a very crucial element. Though Wilson is careful to say repeatedly that good works are not in themselves the ground of our salvation— and that the ground of every aspect of our salvation is Christ. So anyone who reads that is going to think, that sounds orthodox. He, he neglects to point out that the ground of justification has never been the issue in the justifi- justification controversy. The issue is whether good works are in any way an instrument of salvation. So Norman Shepherd is a primary teacher of this distinction, between works not being the ground and yet an instrument of justification. He admits that Christ is the only ground of justification and specifically denies the Roman Catholic argument that justification is an infusion of righteousness. Nevertheless, he argues that good works, though not the ground of justification, are an instrument in obtaining justification. So, there, I encourage you to go read this because I think it's, it's very important. This is... Uh, defenders of Wilson and other proponents will say, look here, he says justification by faith alone. That's, he says that good works are not the ground, but you have to continue to read because he says that they are the instrument, and this is not the reform position. That's right. And in addition to, you know, as we've, we've looked at redefining baptism and then redefining justification, um, then faith is also redefined. So, that, so instead of the historical definition of faith as knowledge, assent, and trust, um, the Federal Vision talk about justifying faith as including assent, knowledge, and a living trust, um, which goes along with the age and maturity of the believer. One of the other things that happens with redefining, redefine. They've redefined baptism, they redefine justification, that uh, it's also necessary to redefine faith. And this goes back to, you know, what we said about Norman Shepherd, that instead of t- looking, describing faith uh, historically as, you know, knowledge, assent, and trust, um, faith has an element of, it, it's obedient faith, or faithfulness, faithfulness to the covenant, or covenant faithfulness, each of these are ways that are used in describing it. So, in this way, faith becomes uh, a work, and that is a, a departure, a redefinition. And, and that's, that's really important. That, that's very significant when you change the definition of faith. You know, that, what's interesting about that, um, you know, when I was in college, most of my, I was a history major, and I took a lot of classes in medieval, renaissance, reformation history, and my professor uh, for most of these classes, was a Eastern Orthodox believer. And so, when he got into talking about the Reformation, he really, he was really v- usually very even-handed, but he had nothing good to say about Luther and Calvin and 
Um, and one of the things that he, he talked about is, you know, the when the verse says that Abraham was uh, justified by faith, right, that, and we are justified by faith, that the, ver- the scripture verses that talk about that, he's like, no, 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 that's a mis- mistranslation. It's supposed to be faithfulness. We're justified by faithfulness. And so, it's interesting to me to see the similarity in how these discussions go about, um, you know, turning faith into, from, from faith alone into faithfulness, which becomes a work. That's a good example of how these debates are nothing new. They're just repackaged and named different things. Yes. Um, exactly. So, in continuing, the things that, you know, once you start uh, redefining, you know, the sacraments, redefining justification, redefining faith, another thing that gets redefined in their discussions, in their explanations, is apostasy. Um, the the language from the Joint Federal Vision Statement is, they affirm that apostasy is a terrifying reality for many baptized Christians. It's all those who are baptized into the triune name are united with Christ in His covenantal life. And so, those who fall from that position of grace are indeed falling from grace. And they say the connection that an apostate had to Christ was not merely external. As you know, Colleen mentioned that they, they get into two types of election, so a, a temporal election and an eternal election, and you see that in what they say about apostasy. They say that they deny that any person who is chosen by God for final salvation before the foundation of the world can fall away and be finally lost, that the decretally elect cannot apostatize. So, they have these two different kinds of election. Right. And... And two different kinds of salvation then, because they talk about that final salvation versus whatever, you know, temporary forgiveness of sins and whatever um, uh, our temporary, whatever um, our baptism, the union with Christ that, that they say we have because of our baptism, whatever that has gained us are a real things that we have someone who that leaves the faith they've actually lost then that union with Christ. So look to your baptism as long as you're doing your part. <laughs> it's basically how it sounds to me. You know, uh, by the way, I'm just going to say that um, I've said this on the podcast before, especially when Ashley was, was on, that we're two moms uh, doing a podcast and, and real life happens. So sometimes you'll hear our animals in the background. Sometimes it's Rachel's dog. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's mine. Um, and that's just just life. We got kids and animals and, and, and we're doing life here. One of the things that was so disturbing to me reading about Federal Vision was the denial of law gospel distinctions. And you know, anyone that's listened to us for any length of time knows how important this is to us. And if you go back and listen to our episode on law law and gospel, we had many quotes from Calvin and and other historic reform figures uh, talking about the importance of law gospel distinctions. So, sometimes people will say, law gospel distinctions, that's Lutheran. It's actually reformed, and we showed that in that episode. I can put a couple links in the episode notes with quotes from reformed people from the time of Calvin to now. 
uh, talking about law gospel distinctions, but I'll, I'll read a couple quotes here. We deny that law and gospel should be considered as hermeneutics or treated as such. We believe that any passage, whether indicative or imperative, can be heard by the faithful as good news, and that any passage, whether containing gospel promises or not, will be heard by the rebellious as intolerable demand. This changes so much. As we've talked about before, when you talk about law and the purposes of the law, the law shows us our sin. The law drives us to Christ. The law, sh- the law shows the believer how we ought to live. There are so many implications if we ignore law gospel distinctions. No, right. And when we, when we confuse the two, when we deny that there is a difference between the two, then it makes everything a law. It makes everything, it, it, it undercuts grace. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the implications of that in a minute. Um, one of the other uh, original signers for the Joint Federal Vision Statement, uh, is a pastor named Jeffrey Myers, one of the things that he wrote is that uh, the whole bipolar covenant of works grace schema has got to go. And what he meant by that, he talks about you know, this, this whole idea that there is merit that could have been earned by, by Adam or that is earned by Christ, that, that that's inappropriate, and that you know, this law, gospel, works, grace, you know, we shouldn't try to divide the two. Uh, another one of, of the Federal Vision guys wrote, uh, the law as God gave it is the gospel. Wilson wrote, when we say that all of God's word is perfect, converting the soul, when we don't divide it up into law and gospel, when we don't say law over here, gospel over there, when we say it's all gospel, it's all law, it's all good. But the law is not good news for any of us. And so I don't understand why right. why this isn't realized to be such a big problem, uh, such a big departure, as you said, the, the distinction between law and gospel, the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace are at the heart of Reformed belief, of Reformed doctrine. Yeah, I think of that um, quote that we say from J. Gresham Machen all the time, you know, about my hope being the imputation of Christ's act of obedience. There's no hope without it. And if you look at the Joint Federal Vision Declaration, they make that an optional doctrine. So, within a reform framework, they say, it's okay if you believe in it, and it's okay if you don't. And think about that for a second. And this is really foundational to what we believe about the gospel. So, even some of the proponents to say, oh, I believe in the imputation of Christ's act of obedience, they also signed the joint declaration, which says, it's okay if you don't believe in the imputation of Christ's act of obedience. Another thing, and it won't get in real great detail, is they they have a very different understanding of the visible and invisible church, and this is right in the in the joint declaration. And so, obviously, you can almost logically figure out where this is going when they believe that baptized babies are united to Christ. So, the invisible church is those that truly have saving faith, and the visible church are, you know, my children 
when they're baptized, are part of the visible church. They're part of the covenant community, but may or may not be part of the invisible church. They may or may not have saving faith. And so they kind of crush those distinctions. And that's one of the places where, you know, even if you're not in a Presbyterian church, if you're in a Baptist church, and I grew up Southern Baptist, so, you know, I'm speaking from what I remember. Um, you know, we hope that everyone who professed faith in a, in a credo-baptist church and then is baptized, that they are a true believer. But most most of the time when you talk about it as, as, as Christians, we recognize that there are probably people that are, have professed faith who are not believers, right? And so, we would say that they were they never were a believer, right? That, you know, that's, you know, they aren't just a believer just because they've been baptized, just because they made a profession. Um, if their life isn't doesn't bear out the fruits, right? If they if they reject Christ later, then you'd say, well, you know, they were part of the visible church, but you know, they weren't really a believer. So, you know, this is a distinction between the visible and invisible church is one that um, people, regardless of your denominational background, it's something you should be familiar with. And we we actually have in uh, modern news a real example of this. A lot of people have been talking about Joshua Harris who was a pastor who wrote Christian books, Christian books that many people benefited from. And so now he has said, I'm not a Christian. I mean, he's called himself someone who has apostatized. And so, and obviously we don't know if if he has, if he is elect or not, and we pray that he comes to repentance. But within a federal vision framework, they would say he had a temporal election and have has now that he actually had all the benefits of being united to Christ that he was united to Christ and forgiven and and forgiven yeah that he has now apostatized because he has not continued to live in faithfulness right. unless at some point he repents i mean it's speaking from what we can see at this point which is always you know we can't see the heart um you know again when we talk about just briefly before we move on to some of the response. Um, the proponents of federal vision, right? you have the the signers of the original joint declaration. This includes uh, Doug Wilson, Peter Lightheart, James Jordan, Steve Schlesel, Steve Wilkins, and Rich Lusk. Uh, most of these men have also written other books. Uh, there's a, a joint book on the federal vision where they where most of these men at least and some others maybe um, contributed chapters but also they have other their own books on various aspects um, on baptism on communion on justification there's there's a number of of different things that that go into each of their individual views and explanation of uh, federal vision um, the other aspect that you see here when we talk about the connections um, Doug Wilson's denomination, the CREC, uh, to the denomination that he started. It is uh, not part part of the NAPARC denominations, that not the, the sister churches that are Presbyterian and Reformed, but uh, his own denomination. And uh, the theology, the, the, the commonality in these denominations is, is federal vision. Yeah, and, and the CREC is a very interesting denomination. I don't know if anything's existed quite like that before, where you're allowed to be Federal Vision or not be Federal Vision. You're allowed to be Pado-Baptist or Credo-Baptist. In fact, even in the same church, I was reading something from Doug Wilson, where 
you know, he said he is okay with credo Baptist elders in his own congregation. And so it's it's very, very different. In the PCA or OPC, URCNA, RCUS, um, you're not going to have an elder that's credo Baptist. Um, all of the elders will be Baptist and adhere to the important aspects of the Westminster Standards or Three Forms of Unity. They might take some minor exceptions, but there are certain things where exceptions are not allowed. That's a good point. As we said in the beginning, almost all the NAPARC denominations have, they, you know, at their general assemblies or, you know, uh, similar type meetings. So in in Presbyterianism, if you listen to our episode about Presbyterianism, General Assembly, that's kind of the the top, the top tier of what goes on. So you have um, you have the church and you have um, different presbyteries and then you have General Assembly. So each of the General Assembly or similar, uh, depending on the denomination, uh, erected a study committee and put together a paper in response to federal vision. And so we're going to go over some of the errors that were identified in each of these denominations. And, you know, like we mentioned before, what, one thing that's very remarkable is that in each of these, and there were statements by five of the, the NAPART denominations, that there is considerable overlap uh, in what they wrote and the concerns that they saw and the problems that they saw. Um, it, it's it's not that you know one one group thought it was bad, but the other ones aren't so sure. There is a there is considerable consistency between each of these statements. So you'll hear a repetition, but that's because they each said these things. So um, I'll read just a couple things. Covenant Presbytery of RPCUS. So this is RPCUS, a little bit different than RPC. U.S. declares that the teaching presented in the 2002 Auburn Avenue Presbyterian Pastors Conference involves a fundamental denial of the essence of the Christian gospel in the denial of justification by faith alone. So here we have a whole denomination saying this is a denial of justification by faith alone. This is a very big deal. So yes, even though you can find videos of Doug Wilson on YouTube saying, I believe in justification by faith alone. We have a whole denomination saying, no, this is a denial of justification by faith alone. I read earlier from the um, RCUS saying, yeah, Doug Wilson sounds orthodox at certain points, but he makes good works an instrument of justification, which is not justification by faith alone. Yeah, the um, that statement by the the. RPCUS, and it goes on to talk about each of the speakers at the Auburn conference, and that it they introduce and it talks about the infusion of sacerdotalism, uh, the redefinition of the doctrines of the church, and or the doctrines of the church, the sacraments, election, effectual calling, perseverance, regeneration, justification, union with Christ, and the nature and instrumentality of faith. So again, these these things that we talked about as you know the kind of the basic beliefs of federal vision, these are you'll see these again and again in these statements as we talk about them. I think it's important to note uh, those the list that Rachel just gave are uh, I don't even think we got to all of those, but those are things that we just talked about. Rachel and I aren't just making stuff up. Hey, we don't agree with them. We're actually looking to denominations 
that have ruled on this, that have said these things are error, these things are inconsistent with Scripture, these things are not consistent with our Reformed confessions. And all of these statements will have links, uh, so if you want to go through and read them more in depth, we're kind of hitting the highlights here. Um, The OPC, that's the uh, church denomination that I'm part of, um, had their study, and they listed 20 errors, uh, and these are a few of them. Uh, one of the errors that they see in Federal Vision is the monocovenantalism, which is, the, again, the, the flattening and den- uh, of the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. So, denying that there isn't a covenant of works and denying that there is a covenant of grace distinct from the covenant of works. Um, they noted that within Federal Vision, there is a denial of the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. Uh, defining justification exclusively as forgiveness of sins, including works by the use of faithfulness and obedience in the definition of faith, um, failing to affirm an infallible perseverance, denying the uh, concept of the invisible church. They talked about an error as a overly objectified sacramental efficacy, which would mean Um, believing that baptism uh, does more in in regeneration and uniting to Christ than than the Reformed view uh, and and what the the baptism itself does for a person. Uh, The era of teaching, paedo communion, uh, among, these are some of the 20. And one of the things they talk about when you talk about, you know, there's there are differences between what people in the Federal Vision believe. That when they did their study, they said they took one of the more moderate Federal Vision men, who is, uh, they call Doug Wilson, and one of what they say is a more radical Federal Vision man, uh, Rich Lusk, and they examined them on ecclesiology and the sacraments. Uh, and it says, we have found them downplaying the need for faith or the intellectual content of faith or some such thing so that they may stress the objectivity of the sacraments, the covenant, and the church. The statement goes on to say, We must subjectively exercise faith to enjoy God's justifying and sanctifying acts in which he both forensically declares and transformatively works. This faith is a gift of God, particularly worked by the preaching of the word. It is our concern that in the attempt to recover a high view of the sacraments, the federal vision runs in the opposite direction and downplays the preaching of the word as the primary developer of saving faith. And the nature of saving faith is and always will be crucial for a right understanding of the doctrine of justification. The PCA, and I'll just read a couple of them, the view that an individual is elect by virtue of his membership in the visible church, and that his election includes justification, adoption, and sanctification, but this individual could lose his election if he forsakes the visible church, in contrary to Westminster standards. So again, we see these two different kinds of election. Uh, The view that strikes the language of merit from our theological vocabulary, so that the claim is made that Christ's merits are not imputed to his people in contrary to Westminster Westminster standards. And if you listen to our episodes on covenant theology and even uh, covenant baptism, you know that if you start by denying the covenant of works and then don't need the imputation of Christ's act of obedience, and even with baptism, 
this view that one is united to Christ and therefore has all of the benefits of one that has true saving faith, but yet could lose that. This is very contrary to covenant theology based on the Reformed confessions. It's contrary to the Reformed view of baptism. And if you, and I know that for Baptists that maybe don't fully understand the Reformed view of baptism, this may be confusing. Um, the view that one can be united to Christ and not receive all the benefits of Christ's mediation, including perseverance. So they do say, well, they receive all of these benefits, but maybe not perseverance. They can apostatize. The committee views the federal vision position as ultimately leading to presumption or despair, not assurance. At the heart of their belief is the view that water baptism serves as the means for uniting each participant to Christ. Those baptized receive all the benefits of Christ's mediation except final perseverance. Our concern is that some of those who are baptized will simply presume on God's grace, continuing in the covenant without apostatizing, but also without justifying faith. So, is you know, it's in my mind, it's a little bit ironic because they say, look to your baptism where you received all these benefits, but then you're also having to make sure that you have done your part. And so have you not, There, there's really a lack of assurance there. One of the other denominations that issued a statement was the URC, and I think theirs had seven points to it, or nine points, sorry, nine points against the federal vision. Uh, and again, we'll have uh, links for this. And it started out by saying, that they affir- that the Synod, the URC, affirms that the Scriptures and the Confessions teach the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and that nothing is taught in our churches that may contradict this doctrine. So they, then they rejected certain errors, and some of the errors that they reject were the teaching that all baptized persons are in the covenant of grace in the same way that there is no distinction between those who only have an outward uh, relation to the covenant of grace by baptism, and those are un- who you're united to Christ by grace alone through faith alone. They rejected as an error those who teach that uh, human works or cooperation with grace is in any part either the ground of our righteousness uh, or any part of our faith uh, that is the instrument by which we embrace Christ, our righteousness. They also rejected those who define faith in the act of justification as being anything more than leaning and resting on the sole obedience of Christ crucified or a certain knowledge of and a hearty trust in Christ and his obedience and death for the elect. Um, They also denied as an error any who teach that there is a separate and final justification grounded partly upon righteousness or sanctity inherent in the Christian. And we'll get to some of this as why this is important. Uh, These distinctions are important in in a minute. If you listen to Federal Vision proponents, they will often use people like Calvin or the Westminster Divines or the Puritans to argue um, that, hey, I'm consistent with historic Reformed theology. And so you have to be really, really really careful. And I've noticed they're they're very confident. Hey, this is what Calvin taught. Uh, Doug Wilson said Calvin taught baptismal regeneration. He says it very confidently, and and so it's tempting to believe him. But you really have to look at Calvin and see that that's not what Calvin taught. So we're going to talk about how is federal vision 
different than historic reform theology. And some of these things we've talked about on the podcast before, like I mentioned, um, I'm going to link episodes that talk specifically about the reform positions, like our episode on covenant theology, our episode on covenant baptism, our episode on law and gospel. So we're going to talk, uh, start with covenant theology. So reformed theology affirms a pre-temporal covenant between the Father and Son and implicitly the Holy Spirit to accomplish the redemption of the elect and to, uh, to apply it to them. A covenant of, covenant of works before the fall, a covenant of grace after the fall. And uh, we're going to link several articles from R. Scott Clark because he has done so much work on this. And he has several podcast episodes that are worth listening to on both Heidelcast and Office Hours, and I'm going to link those. So Federal Vision, the Federal Vision affirms only one covenant, a gracious conditional covenant before the fall, and a conditional gracious covenant after the fall. The Federal Vision generally rejects the pretemporal temporal covenant. That's from R. Scott Clark. And so when he says generally, this is one of those instances where among the federal vision proponents, it's they kind of make it optional which view that you hold. You know, as we said, the uh, federal vision redefines justification. And the way they do that is that by taking away the covenant of works uh, from Adam and Christ, so then it's, uh, it's now up to us that we have to cooperate with the grace and fulfill our part of the covenant. And like I said, this when you, when you take away the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, what ends up happening is that everything becomes work. Everything becomes works. And, you know, again, this is something that, that Scott Clark has said, that uh, he says this has the effect of placing the Christian in a covenant of works. The uh, statement by the RCUS says, uh, again, if Wilson wants to be orthodox, he must unambiguously proclaim that good works are not an instrument of justification. He needs to embrace what has been taught by Reformed theology concerning James's use of the term justify. Uh, Calvin says it well when he writes, If you would make James agree with the rest of Scripture and with himself, you must understand the word justify in another sense than Paul takes it. We must take notice of the twofold meaning of the word justified. Paul means it by the imputation of righteousness before God, and James as the manifestation of righteousness by our conduct and that before men, so that we may gather from the preceding words, show me your faith. In rejecting this understanding of James, Wilson rejects the traditional interpretation of James and places James at odds with and in contradiction to the teachings of Paul. And you know to to elaborate on that, when Paul says we are just we are justified by faith alone, and James says we are not justified by faith alone, they are not contradicting each other. They are talking about justifying in two different ways, which is what this quote from Calvin says. That what Paul is talking about is we are justified, we are made right before God by faith alone. Our justification, our salvation is made clear to others around us by our actions. And that's what James is talking about. So these are not two, the same type of justification that are at odds, but two different ways of talking about our faith. God does not need to see our works to know that we are saved. He knows. But people around us and in the church, our good works and what we do are evidence 
of the change in our heart that has been wrought through justification and through union with Christ. The RCUS statement also says that in making good works a co-instrument with faith in the appropriation of Christ, Christ our righteousness, Wilson denies that justification is truly by faith alone. One thing we talk about a lot is the importance of distinguishing between justification and sanctification. And we did an episode on the Ordo Salutis, and, and that's one thing that you'll find that is different among federal visionists. But we talked about the importance of understanding this logical order of what happens. And so, if you look at the Westminster Catechism, even in regards to justification and sanctification, they are two distinct things. And so, we affirm what Westminster says about sanctification, that those that are justified will be sanctified, that our good works are fruit and evidence. And so, they're kind of collapsing justification and sanctification and making those good works part of justification instead of fruit and evidence of sanctification. So, on the sacraments, again, this is something that that we have talked about quite a bit. Ref- the reform distinguished between baptism as a sign and seal of initiation into the visible covenant community and the supper as a sign and seal of covenant renewal. So, in Federal Vision, they believe that babies are united to Christ in baptism. This is not the historic reform position. Federal Vision proponents will try to argue that this is what Westminster is saying, but this is not the historic reform position. So, uh, Doug Wilson says, we are united to him in faith and in our baptism. So, salvation then is received by faith plus baptism. And that, that's in his book, Reformed is Not Enough. Um, so, Wilson's primary failure to distinguish between the work of the sacraments and the confirmation of faith. In this, all the graces of God are at work, but it is confirmation of the faith by which alone we are justified. That's from the RCUS paper. Um, Another quote from the RCUS paper, Wilson's inference is that God uses both word and sacrament to apply salvation, but this is not how the Westminster Standards put the matter. Rather, the Westminster Standards make a distinction between the word as a means of saving grace, and the sacraments as a means of sanctifying or edifying grace. These statements where they mention Wilson, and us, us um, even in our discussion here, we talk about Wilson, we're not, they weren't, and we're not picking on him, right? We're not uh, obsessed with him and trying to prove that he's something. He is kind of the the shorthand the, uh, for sa- talking about Federal Vision because he is uh, – you know, like Colleen mentioned, the the public face, the the most well known uh, of the proponents, and you know, so you see his name pop up in the discussions and in the the statements because of that. So where they talk about Wilson doing it, it it's also true kind of across the board in the other re- the rest of the statement, the Federal Vision statement, and then also in the other writings by the other Federal Vision men. And I know that sometimes in current discussions, I've seen this more times than I can count, uh, people will say, but Doug Wilson is not Federal Vision anymore. And we'll get to this more later. Um, Doug Wilson did not go as far as some of the other proponents. That That is definitely true. But he, uh, when he wrote his paper called Federal Vision Nomos, which people often point to, 
in that paper, and like I said, we'll get to this more later, he said he hasn't changed anything that he believes, and he still um, holds to that which he signed off on in the joint declaration. And the other thing is the things that we're quoting his book, Reformed is Not Enough, in in these episodes, and that book is still for sale on Canon Press. So um, if he has no longer believes these things, um, I haven't seen any evidence of that. So uh, G.I. Williamson, and I, I just have to tell really quick every time I see his name because uh, when we were when my kids were younger, um, he would visit our church occasionally, and my son would call him Papa and love to sit on his lap. So. Um, I have fond memories of J.R. Williamson. Uh, He offers a good summary of the teaching of the Westminster Confession concerning the efficacy of baptism, correctly observing that the efficacy is not a saving efficacy. So this is when we're talking about the reform position on baptism. Baptism never causes union with Christ. It never has that effect. That is not the purpose of baptism. The purpose of the baptism is to confirm and testify that God gives union with Christ to whom he will, as he will, and when he will. Baptism, like circumcision, may have no effect upon some people, but infant baptism does have a profound effect upon some who are converted long after they are baptized. The order then that they may be either one baptism, then effectual calling into union with Christ, and then the efficacy of baptism, or effectual calling, then baptism, and then efficacy of baptism, and cannot be in any other order. For one cannot experience the efficacy of baptism prior to effectual calling. So that's from G.I. Williamson from the Westminster Confession of Faith for Study Classes, which my husband went and I went through part of that um, years ago. The thing that's so important to understand when we're talking about federal vision and the sacraments, and I know that bap- this is the point where Baptists often say, this doesn't apply to us. It's a Presbyterian thing. And so, yeah, when we're talking about federal vision and Baptists, this is the part where there's going to be differences among Baptists and Presbyterians that hold to it. But even for those that say, I'm not going to use the federal vision label anymore, their kids are still communing. Their babies are still communing because they believe their babies have been united to Christ in baptism. That's right. Um, and again, you know, as we'll get into when Wilson has said that um, a Baptist could be a federal visionist, you know, it, to him it doesn't matter how one is baptized or when one is baptized, he would still say that that baptism unites that person to Christ. And then it's still a matter of covenant faithfulness to stay in the covenant and to stay, um, to, to maintain, uh, to persevere to final salvation. So, moving on to the, the next point, uh, the difference between federal vision and historic reformed uh, doctrine is the issue of law and gospel. And as we, we mentioned and talked about in the statements from the various denominations, um, when the federal visionists deny a distinction between the law and gospel, when they deny a distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, then everything gets collapsed then into uh, to one category. So, uh, for example, you know, Doug Wilson has said in a couple places that then the only difference then is how those scripture passages are heard by whether it's a, a believing person or an unbelieving person. So that an unbelieving person 
whether they hear what we would categorize as law or what we would categorize as gospel, to that person, it is all law because they are not believers. But then for a believer, whether you hear law or gospel, um, it's all gospel to a believer. And this is completely contrary to the, the Reformed understanding of works, uh, the covenant of work and the covenant of grace, to the distinction between the law and the gospel. And this is what, you know, Paul talks about that, you know, the law can't save, right? The law is good, but it cannot save us. Paul doesn't say, well, there is no law for the believer in the sense of like, it doesn't exist. The law still exists, uh, but it's fulfilled in Christ. And the moral law then is still, um, you know, for us as believers, it still informs how we should live and how we should uh, serve God and our neighbor. And so the, go- the law still has a function, and it functions to, to drive us to Christ. It functions to teach us what it means to serve God, right? And gospel is truly the gospel, and it is not the same as the law. The gospel is the good news that we are saved by Christ's work and Christ alone. And when you collapse the two so that everything is law and gospel, it doesn't make everything good news. It actually makes everything very bad news, Um, Some of you may remember that we talked about this in regard to Lordship Salvation, and this is where sometimes people will see some overlap, even though I think Federal Vision is a far greater error than Lordship Salvation. But you might remember we talked about uh, the rich young ruler, that MacArthur says the rich young ruler is gospel. And I read that story, and it's crushing. It's not good news to me. That's not good news. The purpose of that story is to show him that he falls short of God's glory and needs Christ. It's not good news. And it changes so many things if you don't see a law-gospel distinction. You know, the law says, do this and live. The gospel has a promise to us. It's the good news. And now we see no distinction between good news and bad news. We see no distinction between the purposes of the law and Those things are things I think about every single day. Even the Heidelberg Catechism split up into guilt, grace, and gratitude. That that no longer has that distinction if we're not considering law and gospel. Um, So the last one of these areas that we want to talk about, and there's lots of things that we could talk about about where federal vision departs from historic Reformed uh, belief. We're kind of hitting on the the high notes, the the ones that are – Kind of the most pressing, the ones that are the, the easiest to understand and explain why it's different. Um, the other thing that happens then with their redefinition of perseverance and then also then assurance, by placing your hope of salvation, and when they say look to your baptism, right? Because that baptism unites you to Christ and gives you forgiveness of sins and the benefits of, of union with Christ are all yours because of your baptism. What they say then is, the the way then that you make it to final justification, to final salvation, is through perseverance. And this is through your covenant faithfulness. And while this is intended to, to increase someone's assurance and to make them feel more secure in their salvation, because they can say, hey, I was baptized, I'm, I'm, I'm good. What it ends up doing is it, as the one of the statements said, it drives you to despair because what you look at then is you look at your own faithfulness, your own work to say whether or not you are persevering enough to be saved. And um, 
one of the links that we're going to have is a is a discussion on uh, some of these issues and how how it works out. Um, I want to quote from the guy. He says, The Auburn system leaves people with a far greater anxiety than any overemphasis of the Puritans, so what they were concerned about. So further, the dozens of passages that teach the perseverance of the saints and thus strengthen our faith in Christ's saving power are rejected because they can't mean the same thing based on if we all have by our baptism, we are united to Christ, and yet if we don't persevere, then we fall away and we're not saved, then the actual meaning of perseverance disappears. Um, That same article says uh, that the federal vision makes continued faithfulness to the covenant an instrument of justification along with faith. So then everyone in the visible church who is baptized is saved, united to Christ. But only those who continue in faithfulness actually go to heaven. Everyone else apostatizes and goes to hell. So then, according then, this guy says, according to Federal Vision, uh, the main issue in laying hold of the merits of Christ, of Jesus, is not faith, but continued faithfulness to the conditions of the covenant. And all of these things, when they reject, they reinterpret James when they reject the traditional view of perseverance. And the traditional view of perseverance is that everyone who is elect, everyone who has been uh, been justified, will be sanctified, and will be glorified at the last day. That this is God's work and it is complete. That when Christ says that no one the Father has given me, I will lose. That this is, our salvation is secure in Him and cannot be lost. When they redefine perseverance, and they redefine baptism, and then they redefine justification, that all of this together creates a system that is very much like the Roman Catholic view of salvation. And is in such, it is completely contrary to a Reformed understanding of salvation, of justification, of perseverance, of sanctification. All of these things, uh, it, it is it is the antithesis of what we believe about uh, the Reformed faith. I think of when we talk about the law and and what it does, um, it, it just changes everything. And I keep going back to the Heidelberg Catechism that when I fail, I don't, I look to Christ. And R. Scott Clark says that our good works may strengthen our assurance but Christ alone is the ground of our assurance, and this makes my good works the ground of my assurance. So, on one side, I look to my baptism in Federal Vision, but on the other side, I look to my good works. And if you want to see how this plays out in a practical level, listen to our episode about Doug Wilson's daughter's book, where throughout that book, reading sections, I felt crushed because I had to live up to something specific to know that I for sure was in Christ. I had to be obeying a specific amount, and I'm so grateful that I can look to Christ alone as the ground of my assurance. I ran across a quote from Machen today that someone shared, and I looked up the fuller quote from it because it, it was really, and it, it struck me that it was something we were going to talk about here. And he said, Even very imperfect and weak faith is sufficient for salvation. Salvation does not depend on the strength of our faith, but it depends on Christ. 
When you want assurance of salvation, think not about your faith, but about the person who is the object of your faith. He will not desert those who are committed to him, but will keep them safe both in this world and that which is to come. I think that's a great note to end um, part one on. And we can put that quote in the episode notes. So uh, next week, we're going to um, continue this discussion. And we're, we're going to talk about how federal vision is a threat to the gospel. We're going to respond to some common statements that we hear about federal vision. Because right now, even people that say, I'm not federal vision, there's some common things that they will say when federal vision is brought up. I've seen it countless times. And so we're going to respond to those. And um, we're also going to, to talk about whether federal vision is a threat to Baptists at all, because it's often said it isn't. And, and we are going to talk a little bit about how it really changes our ground of assurance, um, what Rachel was just talking about. So please join us next week. We're going to talk about some more practical things. We really wanted to kind of build a foundation for what federal vision is and how it differs from historic reform theology. So we'll see you next week.